Um, well, welcome to Horizon. It is good to see you all. You're looking lovely and handsome as always. And today we are continuing through our series called Down to a Science, where we've been taking a look at God and putting him under the microscope when it comes to scientific studies like mathematics and chemistry and physics. And there's all the classes that I was terrible in in high school. We've been seeing if God can like hold water. Well, thankfully today we're going to switch it up and we're going to look at God through the animal kingdom. Okay, we're going to take a look at two animals that have these amazing instincts to return home. Okay, in some cases it's 900, 1,000 miles. They can return home being guided by nothing more than an innate instinct. And I wonder for you, what comes to your mind when I say the word home? Is it your, your childhood home, like a building? Is it your hometown? Like I'm from Madeira, I'm always going to be a Mustang baby. Um, or is it a, a feeling, a warm, ooey-gooey feeling of home? As you think about it, this concept of home, it's kind of complex, right? It can be filled with a lot of powerful and strong emotions. Um, so much so that in 1940, an American author named Thomas Wolfe, he penned these now famous words of, you can't go home again. He wrote a novel by the same title. And these words have become often used in our English vernacular because I think they betray an unmet longing that we all have in our hearts. That we feel it. We can't quite define it all the time, but we also can't quite deny it. And I think it's a longing for the simplicity and innocence of our youth. But as Thomas, Thomas Wolfe asked, like, can we truly ever go home again. Pictures of houses for years 
Man, it is so clear that her father must have taught her everything she knows about singing. <laughs> but I, I love that song. It's beautiful, but I find the bridge haunting. <laughs> that you leave home and you move on and you, you do the best you can. I mean, that rings pretty true. Um, I've got lost in this old world and forgot who I am. And friends, I think any of us that are adults and have left our childhood homes and hometowns, that we could agree with those words, that we find our ways on the grand adventure of life. And there are those moments where we find ourselves lost, where we've forgotten who we are or even how to get back home again. Um, well, to help us with that today, we're gonna, again going to look at two animals. And I want to introduce you first to the monarch butterfly that is an expert at finding its way home. Like clockwork, every November, a spectacular journey comes to an end as millions of monarch butterflies travel thousands of miles to reach this patch of forest in the Sierra Madre Mountains of central Mexico. Here, they will spend the winter safe from the freezing temperatures where they were born. This transcontinental migration began three months earlier when a new generation of monarchs emerged east of the Rocky Mountains from Canada to Texas. Then by late September, most of them departed for an overwintering site they had never seen before. Their route south funneled the butterflies through the Midwestern United States. Traveling more than 50 miles a day, they navigated precisely with their solar and magnetic compasses and internal clock. These insects have no leader to follow or prior knowledge of their destination. Yet every year, another generation finds sanctuary by clustering on the same trees that sheltered their great-great-grandparents the year before. In many ways, the monarch's epic journey is still a mystery to science, and questions of how are not satisfied by theories based on blind chance or random genetic mutations. Instead, within this finely tuned environment, 8,000 feet above sea level, evidence of biological design, foresight, and purpose is displayed with each magnificent stroke of every paper-thin wing. just imagine you're standing there right now today and you're surrounded by millions and millions of monarch butterflies. I mean, how incredible that these insects are born with this instinct that one day they wake up and it's getting a little cooler, the sun's a little lower in the sky, and this instinct is just triggered. And they fly hundreds and hundreds, in some cases a thousand miles, to a place they've never been before. Did you catch that? 
Like they've never been there. It takes three generations for monarchs to arrive back in Mexico. Like that's just crazy. Well, well what if, friends, what if we are just like the monarch butterfly? What if, what if the same God who made this beautiful little insect and put inside of it an instinct for home, what if he put inside each of us a similar instinct for home? And that's what spawned those words that Thomas Wolfe wrote, that you can't go home again, um, that we have this longing. You want to know what I think? You want to know what I think? Doesn't matter. I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> uh, I think that we are all homesick for a land that we have never been to. We're homesick and we see glimpses of it all around us in the beauty. We see the longing, okay? You drive to the mountains like those or you go to the ocean and you feel so small and the world seems so big and you feel this tinge of joy meets pain in your heart and you're like, man, I, I just don't know. I can't quite deny it, but I can't quite define what's going on here. There's just beauty, you know, or there's that piece of music that you just love. This will surprise you, but I love cello music. It's weird, I know. But like I'll turn on cello music and it's just, it's beautiful. Or best yet, friends, you, you, you hold that child for the first time, right? Can you remember doing that? Or I'm told even better, you hold that grandchild for the first time. And you breathe in that amazing baby smell, right? You know what I'm talking about. If they could make scented candles out of that, that's a million dollar idea right there. Right, that we, we feel the longing, but it, it's like a voice that we know and trust, but we can't quite place whose it is. Um, English uh, theologian, theologian and author uh, C.S. Lewis puts it way more elegantly than I will. Um, he says this, he says, These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. So he's talking about the beauty, the mountains, the music, the ocean. When you feel that longing that you can't quite define, but you can't deny the memories, the nostalgia you have for your childhood, those summers where you're carefree and eight years old and running around and you don't shower for like two days and nobody cares, right? Like he's talking about that stuff. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Like C.S. Lewis puts it so beautifully, so poetically, but I'm still a little confused. <laughs> so is it cryptic? Like, Ryan, what is home if it's not a house? What is home if it's not a town? What is home if it's not the warm, ooey-gooey feeling? What is this thing itself that C.S. Lewis is talking about? Well, well, the Bible talks a lot about home. Okay, in the Bible, there are hundreds of verses on this idea of heaven, right? The eternity, heaven, oh, heaven. You know, and I've yet to be to a funeral. Christian, atheist, lots of different religions where the idea of heaven isn't even vaguely mentioned. Right? Like, oh, they're in a better place. At least they're not in pain. You know, I think heaven is kind of written into our DNA, but the Bible does us one better, okay? Because heaven can seem kind of too far in the distance to be much of a motivator, right? Because we all think we're going to live to be like 150. Um, the Bible actually talks about home in another way, okay, that's even more personal. It says this. It says, Lord, you 
have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That the first thing I want you to know about home is that home isn't a someplace, it's a someone. Can I think we intrinsically know this, that as you think about your childhood and the things you connect with, you think of people. You think of coming home from summer camp to the warm embrace of your mommy or dad. You think about going to grandma and grandpa's and raiding their cookie jar, right? You think of the best friends that you played kick the can with in the backyard as a child. Like it's always linked to a person. And I'll give you a, just a story that's personal from my life about that. In the late 90s, my parents, they buy a house in uh, Marblehead, Ohio. So it's a little village. Anybody been there? Lake Erie? Yeah, cute. And it's a fixer-upper, okay, just, you know, fixer-upper. My dad was an auto worker, so, you know. Um, and my mom will spend two years renovating this place. I mean, Becky can attest, okay. And she, like, lived there almost, so I don't know how they stayed married. But she stayed there, and she renovated the place and decorated it. And let me tell you, she painted every surface in the house, okay. So, like, every wall was painted, every ceiling. She painted things you shouldn't paint, like window sills and window frames. I mean, half the windows wouldn't open at the end of this, Nelson. It's crazy. Um, she even painted the kitchen floor. Like she painted this like checkerboard pattern on the kitchen floor. It took her a week with chalk lines and measuring sticks because she wanted the squares to be perfect. And it was this like sage green and white uh, checkerboard pattern. Do you remember farm chic? It was like a thing back in the day. Um, and, and when we would go to that house, it was, man, it was like a, a warm hug from my mom the whole time we were there. The whole time. Any room, you're just like, oh, it so feels like home. Right, and for a decade, that's how it felt. We'd go for a weekend or a week, and it was just a warm hug from mom the whole time. But as happens in life, in, in 2010, she, she got an aggressive form of breast cancer, and she would only have a four-year battle with it, or a four-month battle, I'm sorry. It was quick, and, and she passed away. And a couple months later, my dad and I, we go up to the house. We want to see how it did during the winter. Did the pipes freeze? All that kind of stuff. Um, and I still remember today walking through the, the screened-in porch like I had done a hundred times before. Walking up to the kitchen door, unlocking it, walking in onto that beautiful <laughs> checkerboard floor that she had spent a week painting. And it no longer felt like home. I mean, it felt like a foreign land, an alien space. I, I walked through it. We were there a couple days, and it was probably two of the saddest days of my life. And within a, a few months, we sold the house because we just couldn't bear it. And now I wish we wouldn't have, given some time and space. Um, but it, it just showed me that home isn't a someplace. It, it's a someone. So when God says, hey, I am your dwelling place from everlasting to everlasting, man, does it ring true? Because I've seen it. I saw it in Marblehead, Ohio. Home is a someone. But what does that look like? That's still kind of vague, Ryan. Like home is a someone. Help me understand that. Um, well, well, to understand that, let's take a look at a someone in the Bible, okay? Jesus tells this story about a father in the Bible, okay? And this father is awesome. Best father ever. He's got two sons. Um, and I'm going to let the cat out of the bag on the front end, okay? So you ready for this? Jesus is telling this story about this father because he wants to let us into the heart and character 
of the God of the universe. That he's saying, hey, this father, if you want to know what God looks like, what my father looks like, I'm about to tell you a story, okay? So Jesus is about to spin us a yarn here, as they like to say. He says, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. So the younger son says, Dad, I'm tired of living by your rules and I'm out of here, man. Right? Do you remember being 18 and like thinking that way? Like I remember it. Like I had good parents. They were awesome. I was fed. It was amazing. But I wanted out of there like it was Alcatraz. Right? Like I just wanted to get out. And some of that is like good and normal and adulting. Right? You got to leave home. Um, But there's more going on here in this story because this inheritance, it was supposed to be divided where the older brother... Okay, who was dependable, predictable, and really bitter. The older brother was supposed to get 70, 80, 90% of the inheritance. That's how you kept estates together generation to generation. So the younger son is saying, hey, older brother, I'm going to spit in your face. I want half of it. And then the kicker here is, is that this wasn't supposed to pass while the old man was alive and kicking. Okay, like he's saying, hey, dad, I kind of wish you were dead. Why don't you just hit me up with the money I'm going to get when you die? Right? Like, can you imagine? Um, it's crazy. And here's the thing that just blows my mind, okay? The father does it. Like, does it not blow your mind? Like, would you do that, dads? So would you be like, sure, son, let me just pull out the checkbook. Right? Like, no way. Like, what, what kind of father does this? Well, well, friends, if Jesus is telling us this parable to teach us about the character and heart and nature of God the Father... Then, then here's the kind of father that doesn't do this, a controlling father. Right? I think sometimes God gets a bad rap, that he's just controlling and he's just, Ugh. well, I don't see any control here. What I see is a father that wants a loving relationship with his son, and love is never based on force or control. So he's willing to let the son walk away. And the son does. And the son, he walks to the faraway lands, okay? And the Bible uses kind of like PG language where it's like, you know, he wastes it all with prodigal living, you know? I never heard prodigal before I became a Christian. But um, think like debauchery at its finest or worst, depending on how you're feeling today, okay? So I think it's like he heads to like Middle Eastern Las Vegas, all right? And there's camels instead of casinos. Um, And let's just put it this way. He is not on a mission trip giving away Bibles to little orphans, okay? Um, He is there living it up. But as many of us have found out and we've seen around us, parties don't go on forever, do they? They they come to an ending. And, And as many of us have found out and seen in the lives around us that when we set fire to all that matters in our life, all of the relationships, and we strike the match and we light the fuse and we walk away as they burst into flames, it was what he did to his family, um, the joy and freedom of the open road is pretty fleeting, but the shackles of brokenness, man, that's, that's, those are long-lasting. And we're going to see this with the young son. It says, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and sent him into the fields to feed swine. 
And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. So the, the money runs out. Punch one. Here comes the follow-up punch. A famine hits. He's in a faraway distant country. He's out of money. He's out of food. He's so hungry, so destitute, that he literally finds himself doing the last thing any good Jewish man would do in that culture. That, friends, pigs were like the, the dirtiest, unclean, ceremonially unclean animal in their culture. It's like top of the list. They weren't supposed to, like, raise pigs, talk about pigs, say the word pig, eat pig, like bacon was a no-no. And he's in the pig pen feeding pigs. Like, he's at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of his barrel of life, right? Like, he's, whew, there's not much bottom left of that barrel, um, and let me tell you this, like, have any of you guys fed pigs? Anybody remember feeding pigs? Man, we got a fun bunch. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, well, last summer I had the joy, joy, of feeding pigs. We were at Happy Church with middle schoolers, and we went to Happy Acres, their little farm. And they're like, hey, do you want to feed some pigs? And good, naive Ryan's like, yeah, let's feed some pigs. This is going to be great. You know, so you like, put on these disgusting boots, you know, like, 800 people have worn before you. you. You climb into the pig pen, and you're walking in pig stuff. Okay, just use your imagination. Smells wonderful. Um, they hand you this thing that's called a slap bucket, which uh, gets its name, yeah, yeah, it gets its name from being disgusting, okay? And you walk up to the pigs, and there is like a 2% cute factor with the little piggies, okay? And they weren't so little. They were like, um, They're sort of cute, but then they smell bad, and they want to eat you. So that's... They're kind of gross too, okay? So I'm like feeding these pigs this food, all right? <laughs> Which, let me tell you, pigs will eat almost anything. So the farmers, they put almost anything in that bucket, all right? Like, you know, like that one time a year where you clean out the bottom of your garbage can? <laughs> That's about what I'm pouring into this little pig pen, okay? And they're all, oh, they're gobbling it up, you know? And um, here's what I know for sure, okay? is that afternoon, it was actually the morning, no part of me was like feeding the pigs and thinking, you know what, like lunch isn't for like three hours, and my tummy, it's a grumbling, I'm getting a little hungry, I think I'm just gonna, oh yeah, this, is, this isn't so bad, right, like no part of me was doing that, I don't know, like, I don't know if I could ever get to that point. Like zombie apocalypse hits and there's no food left on earth. I don't know if I'm doing that. Um, I can't imagine getting to the point where I'm so desperate that I would eat pig slop. But if I'm being honest, man, a room this size watching online, there's some of us who've gotten to that point where maybe we're not eating pig slop, but we are at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of our barrel of life at times, right? That we find ourselves in the figurative pig pen of life. I love in that verse it says that he spent all. And I'm going to update the English a little bit here. He spent it all, okay? He spent it all. He is bankrupt in feeding pigs. And my question for you is, like, what do we do in life when we find ourselves bankrupt, Right, where you're emotionally bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. What do we do? I mean, what do you do when you've spent every last dime of your physical 
and emotional energy. You have poured it all out. You're exhausted, but that alarm clock, beep, 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 it just keeps going off every day. What do you do when you spend every last nickel of your hope? Right? You keep hoping and stuff. You're like, man, I'm, I put my hope in this, this job. If I get this job, or, or man, if I get this relationship, or if I get, you know, if we move to this city, or oh, if we could get that house, or oh, let's get a puppy, let's have a baby, the new iPhone's coming out. You know, and we're like these little hope monsters, and we pull it all in and wind up with empty arms, and we're like, I don't have any hope left. Or the worst yet, friends, what do we do when we've spent every last penny of our joy? Okay, life's gone on script. You're like, that's the college I want to get into? Check. That's the major I want to get into? Check. Okay, that's the career field I want to get into? Check. That's the kind of woman or man I want to marry? Check. I want three kids. Check, check, check. Right? And, and every box is checked. You know, there's vacations. There's, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, and still, you're not happy. <laughs> What do you do when you've spent every last penny of your joy? That life is good and it's still not scratching the itch. Well, friends, I think when we find ourselves in those moments, we, we find ourselves in this figurative pig pen of life, just like the, the younger son. And that, that's the time where we have to make a decision, okay? Am I going to keep running? And maybe the farm next door has better pig slop, right? Maybe their pig slop is organic. Um, am I going to keep doing that? Or, or am I going to look down and be like, I'm standing in pig stuff. This is terrible. That we have to make a decision. And, and the younger son will make a decision here. It says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And I think this is kind of the rehearsed speech. Do you remember being late for curfew? <laughs> and you're driving home, and your leg's shaking, because you're like, oh, no, they're going to be so mad. And you're rehearsing the speech. You're like, well, dear dad, a uh, deer ran out in front of the car, and I pulled over just to be safe for 27 minutes. Um, like he's rehearsing his little apology here, but he does want to go home. He's leaning into the longing, that feeling that you can't always define, but you, you can't quite deny. And friends, here's the one thing I want you to hear, that if you forget everything else I've said, hear this, that it's never too early or too late to go home again. But how do you get from the pig pen to the front porch? That's the question. Well, to answer that, I want to take a look at our second animal of the day, the North American salmon. Every summer or fall, five species of Pacific salmon complete one of the greatest migrations in the animal kingdom. After years at sea, 
the fish return to the same rivers and streams where they once hatched to build their nests and lay and fertilize their eggs. Throughout their journeys, the salmon encounter daunting obstacles, but they battle on relentlessly, instinctively drawn to one defining purpose, the birth and survival of a new generation. Their unwavering determination is surpassed only by the biological wonders that guide each step of their course upstream. In order to reach the precise location where life began, the fish rely on an acute sense of smell and their ability to analyze the chemistry of the water. Despite all of the distractions, they test the molecular content of every river and tributary for the perfect match only their home waters can provide. This navigational system is so accurate a salmon can correctly identify the object of its search in solutions as dilute as one drop per billion. Man, that, that is crazy. So that, that one, pot, one drop per billion is just it's amazing that God puts these instincts in that animal. Um, and it faces challenges along the way home, doesn't it? it? Swims upstream. It's got little waterfalls to jump over. There's those mean grizzly bears, you know, catching them out of the air and <laughs> taking bites out of them. And um, sometimes it can feel like when we want to take a step back towards home, which again is a step back towards a someone, um, that there's some challenges along the way. And I would say a lot of them are self-imposed. And the first one and the greatest one here, okay, it's a four-letter word. All right, you ready for this? Maybe we should have put out the PG signs, uh, Britain, or Brendan, I'm sorry. Um, we should have put those out. It's a four-letter word. Okay, you find yourself in the pig pen, and you're like, you know, I'm in the pig pen. I need, <coughs> excuse me, sorry about that. Uh, I need some, hey, hello, how you doing? <laughs> it's good to see you. I need help, right? Like, we hate that word. In America, we do not like asking for help. Like, here's what I did before my phone had a GPS in it or my car had a GPS in it and I had to get somewhere. You know what I would do? I would just drive around. I could be lost. I'm like, okay, I'm looking for this. I'm certainly not going to stop and ask somebody for directions because that's crazy, right? And if I couldn't find it, it just wasn't that important. Um, that it's hard to admit that we need help. It's a little bit humbling, but the younger son, he does that, friends. He wants to go home. And let's see what happens as he heads back towards that front porch. It says, he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And this would have been a ridiculous sight. Okay, so imagine a prim and proper Jewish father. He would have long robes and tassels. He would have had a long beard. And he's running. Okay, think Forrest Gump running across. Um, these guys were, they didn't run for anything. Okay. Bigfoot could have came out of the woods with a chainsaw and this guy would have like slow walked away. Okay, like the fact that he's running is, blows my mind. But, but he's running 
to meet his son. That the second thing you need to know about home is that home comes running. That when we're brave enough to take one step even out of that pig pen, home, friends, it takes ten steps towards us. And when the two meet, there's no judgment. Right? This is a parable about the, the character and nature of the God of the universe. When the father meets his son, does he say, I can't believe you. Like, you spent half of our money. Right? Like, how dare you? No. Like, all you see here is you see love, forgiveness, and compassion. Hmm. What are, what are we learning about the heart of God? Interesting. And I, I love this story because it implies... Okay, these estates, they would have been massive. So if you watch like Yellowstone, you know, and thousands and thousands of acres. Uh, so the fact that the dad sees the son from a long way off, here's what I think it implies. I, I think it implies that every day he had been walking that fence line. Right? Every day he's walking and he, he's looking and he's longing to see the silhouette of his son coming across the hills back to home and days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months but but why I think that's true is because that's what I would do (laughs) okay and I'm an imperfect father I'm like a bee at best but if one of my four kids took off for the mountains man I would long for their return and wait for their return and watch for their return and every day he's waiting and nothing's coming and then the day comes where he's looking and there it is There's the silhouette of his son, and it's a fragile and frail silhouette. It's not the strong boy that walked off into a foreign land. It's his son, and he's going to run, run, meet him in a a loving embrace of forgiveness, compassion, and love. And, And what I love here, friends, and I don't know if you caught it, is there's this, this whole talk has been about that we have this longing inside of us, an innate desire for home that we can't define but we can't deny that we have this longing for home that is a someone and here in this story where we're learning about the God of the universe what you see is that he has a longing right like he has a longing for his son's return that drives him to the fence posts like isn't that amazing that when longing meet longing there you have this beautiful relationship built on trust and God doesn't long for us um, because he needs us it's not like Jerry Maguire where he's like you complete me Ryan no none of that like he longs for us because he he loves us that we're his his children that the second thing you need to know about home is that home comes running In 1997, I was 21 years old, okay, and I'm, you know, big masculine brawny college guy, you know, not so much. Um, And I came across this very masculine book, okay, so don't be offended by the title, all right, it's pretty tough. It was called The Sacred Romance, right? I know, that's abrasive, as I'll get out. Um, And in The Sacred Romance, the authors, they say this, and then I'll unpack it, since it's already up there. We are all searching for a love that will never let us go. A love that will pursue us to the ends of the earth. That love is the love of God. And friends, this whole book is about the notion that all of our lives 
where we have felt this internal instinct and we felt that tinge of joy meets pain where we're like, man, this, there's a longing, I don't know what it is, that all of our lives we've been being pursued by the God of the universe with his love. So that sunset that takes your breath away, that is God whispering in your ear. That love, again, is never forceful. God doesn't force us to love him back, but he woos us. Those moments at the beach, those moments in the mountains, those moments staring into the eyes of the one you love, that those are moments where God is wooing your heart. And these guys didn't just make this up, okay? It's actually in the Bible. It says it this way. It says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You get this idea of goodness and mercy of God has been pursuing you over the course of your life. Friends, what if, okay, what if home has been pursuing you your entire life? You thought you were looking for it. What's the answers to life? But really, it's been chasing you with its goodness and love. Well, that's the amazing promise of the Christian faith. And the best part is when you come home, God throws a party. Okay, it's crazy. Here's how the story ends. Dad's weeping on his neck, hugging him. He says, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. These are all actions of reinstatement. It'd be like giving your kids back the car keys and the credit card and the key to the house. Um, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. So friends, he throws a party. Okay, so let me do a quick summary <laughs> of the story. Younger son, hey dad, I wish you were dead. Give me some money. Cha-ching. Takes said money, half of the family inheritance, to faraway distant land. Parties it up. Just blows half of the family's money away. Okay. Comes back to dad with his tail between his legs, smelling like a pig. <laughs> and dad throws a party. Like, this just blows my mind. Jesus is saying, hey, you want to know the character and nature of the heart of God, the Father? When you come home, no matter why you come home, how you come home, what you smell like, it, we're throwing a party. <laughs> it just blows my mind. I don't know if it does you. but And I love the fact he says, hey, he was dead and is alive. And then he says this phrase, which I find amazing. He says, he was lost and is found. Now, friends, the last thing you need to know about home is that finding home is being found that when we find home we're found ourselves right we started with that beautiful yet sad and haunting song um, and the whole thesis of that song is i'm lost right i headed out into the world and i got lost and i'm hoping if i could just return to my house and touch my bedroom door or the door handle or, or something that i'm going to feel found again and the song ends unresolved well, well here's the beauty of this story and this parable is that when we find home we become found that we no longer need to spend our lives searching and longing and looking for something to finally fill that hole 
in our hearts. And friends, being found changes everything, okay? Living from a place of being found other than a place of being lost, it just changes everything. And I want to give you one last little analogy to think about today um, before we end our time, okay? So if you think of the prodigal son, that's what he's called, the younger son, he leaves home because he really doesn't want to be controlled, right? That's really kind of what teenagers don't like so much. <laughs> um, he's like, Dad, I don't like your rules. I don't like the rule about older brother getting 70, 80, 90%. I don't want to follow that. I don't like the rule about having to only get my money when you're dead. I want it now. I want to go live life on my own, freedom of the open road, right? He doesn't want to be controlled. But as you look at this parable and this story of the father, when does the father ever control the son? Like, literally, he lets him walk off with half the family's wealth, throws a party when he comes home. And here's what I think, okay? And again, sort of matters if you think you want to hear it. Sort of doesn't, because I'm going to say it. I think that we are like these salmon, and we're swimming in the river of life, right? And what's tempting is to think that God is like the Hoover Dam, you know? And he just wants to come and block off the flow of our lives and keep us from awesome and fun and amazing experiences, you know. He wants me to, to move to like Peru and become a nun and eat crackers for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and warm myself by candlelight, right? Like that's what God wants. Well, do you see that in this story? Not at all. Well, friends, what if, and I well, welcome the band to come out, what if God isn't the Hoover Dam in the river that we're flowing in, what if God is the banks? What if God wants to be the banks and he wants to hold us close? He wants to give us support, guidance, direction without ever cutting us off. That he wants to lead us to amazing and beautiful places that perhaps we couldn't get to on our own. Friends, it's as simple as that. And when you take that step again towards God, he takes 10,000 towards you. Um, so in a week, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a pretty big day coming up, at least in the Christian faith, called Easter, okay? It's a day where we celebrate Jesus rising from the grave. But did you know that a week before that, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a simple donkey, okay? He rides in donkey. That's what I think of when I hear that from Shrek. Um, it, it was fulfilling a prophecy from 600 years before. But he rides in and the people have been hearing him tell parables like the one I shared today about a good and loving father. And, and they're so excited to welcome him, at least on that day, um, that they take these palm leaves and they, they wave them, right? And they're like, yeah, here comes Jesus. You know, the way we might wave foam fingers at a Bengals game or something. And they're so excited and they lay them before him and he rides in on them. Um, well, today is Palm Sunday, so on the way out, there are these little palm leaves you can grab. And how I want you to visualize and think of them is that we're always welcome home and that the God of the universe, in the same way those people wave palm leaves to welcome Jesus, that he is waving these palm leaves saying, come home, come home, you're welcome. On Friday is a thing called Good Friday. If you're interested, we do have a, like a 30-minute Good Friday experience um, all online. You can find it on our website, all of our uh, platforms on TV and the Internet as well. And then on Easter weekend, we have services on Saturday and Sunday. You can sign up for those on our website. And on Saturday, we have a thing called the Extravaganza. 
okay, which is for children and families, and we have a petting zoo. We have two trains, okay? Last year we had one train, and the line took too long. So you know what we did? We searched the tri-state area, and we found a second train, okay? So we got two trains, so the line will move a little faster. Um, so we'd love to have your families join us for that. Um, other than that, have a great day. Hope to see you next week.